Good morning. Oh boy, so good to be back. I think I'm going to be here for a while. <laughs> Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you are doing to put this message out that is transforming so many lives. We pray that you will be with us this morning as we study, that we will come to see the beauty of your character, your kingdom, your methods, your principles, and we will be transformed to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing uh, the, the new quarterly, the sanctuary, and we're doing lesson two, Heaven on Earth. And as you know, this entire quarter, we are looking at the sanctuary, and much confusion arises because... Rightly, this word sanctuary can refer to many different things correctly. For instance, sanctuary can refer to a retreat for rest and rejuvenation. It can refer to a safe haven, a place of worship, a place where God dwells, our bodies and minds, the corporate church, the tent built by Moses, the building built by Solomon and Herod, Jesus and his human body, something in heaven. All of these things can rightly be referred to as sanctuary. Any others that pop to your mind? Can the sanctuary also be used to refer to something it was never intended to refer to? Like the earth, maybe in the early 19th century? William Miller attributed the sanctuary to refer to the earth, and it was never intended to refer to that. So confusion can arise when we study the sanctuary, and, and maybe in a particular place, in context, in paragraph, it's referring to one of those definitions, and, and we are thinking the other definition, and we might get confused. So as we go through, we, we want to kind of see you know, where the things merge, where the harmony is in all this. Sunday's lesson points out the parallels between the Garden of Eden and the sanctuary and suggests that perhaps Eden was the first sanctuary on earth. The lesson points out the parallels, and here's some of them. A place where they communed with God and where God walked. Eden was that place and the sanctuary. Uh, Adam and Eve were to tend and keep Eden as the Levites were to tend and keep the sanctuary. There was garden-like imagery in the sanctuary with the, um, the, the candlestick with the, the uh, almonds and flowers and stuff on it and, and Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, cherubim guarded the way to the Eden after the fall and, and were on the lid to the ark and and then there were six days of creation where God spoke and things came into existence, followed by a Sabbath. And if you look at how the sanctuary was given to Moses, God spoke six times, six separate instruction moments, followed by the instructions for the Sabbath. And so these parallels cause some to consider that Eden was the first sanctuary. Well, let's, let's use that. I think there's some good lessons we can look at with that. First question, what was Eden constructed out of? living organisms living organisms not dead matter not bricks not mortar not cut and dead trees lumbered it's all living organisms wasn't it that's what eden was constructed out of and first corinthians 4 9 says that we are a theater a spectacle to angels and to men was it also true in eden that heavenly beings were watching what was transpiring in eden it's theater, a spectacle. And in whose image were Adam and Eve made? These are rhetorical questions. We all know the answer. They were made in the image of God. To represent who in Eden? What role did they play in the theater of the newly created earth? What was their role there? They were tending. Were they, were they primarily being served by everyone else? Or were they there to make sure everything else had what they need? 
Is God primarily being served by us? Or is he primarily giving of himself for our welfare and beneficence? And notice that Adam and Eve, representing the God, had dwelt among the living organisms. That's where they dwelt. Their home was in the midst of the living organisms of which God created Eden to be. Tending it, keeping it, providing for the welfare, the good, the growth. What do we learn about God in heaven and his heavenly sanctuary? Is there a lesson there? Is God's heavenly sanctuary built out of living organisms and God dwells among his living beings, constantly ministering for our good, our health, our eternal growth, our love, our grace? Or do you think the heavenly sanctuary is built out of dead, inanimate matter? We will come to this theme repeatedly as we go through. Notice what else happened in Eden. Adam named the animals. Adam named them. Any lessons in our relationship with God? In Bible, what does the name refer to? Bible times. Character. So Adam is naming, calling these animals by name. And, um, it's a microcosm. Of, of Adam represents the Godhead. Adam's naming the animals. God knows our true character. And he also has an individual name for each one of us in Revelation. He names us, but only he and we will know. Revelation 2.17, to him who overcomes. I will give some the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Or Revelation 3.12, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Notice a pillar in the temple. We're talking sanctuary. Who overcomes will be a pillar in the temple. Is that a literal pillar? We're going to turn to stone and stand there like this? Is it a symbolic representation that we will be, you know, what's that temple made out of in heaven? According to Peter, living stones will be a living pillar in the temple. Never again will he leave it. We're going to be trapped in a building in heaven for all eternity? Or is it because the the heavenly sanctuary is made out of living beings? No matter where we go, we're part of the temple. I will write on him a new name. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I'll also write on him my new name. Adam names the animals. God names us, gives us a new name. Our right character, our true character, who we really are. And uh, you notice he will write on there, somebody about the new name also has the new Jerusalem. I will write on the new Jerusalem, name of the new Jerusalem. We will come in Thursday's lesson to the new Jerusalem and the sanctuary. But uh, hopefully I just want to trigger your minds to start connecting the, the, all, those, all those threads that you've learned, all those memory verses you've had in your, in, your, in your head for all these years. Start looking for the parallels and the connections, but there's something about the new Jerusalem, about the new name that you're going to get, about the heavenly sanctuary, about the most holy place on earth. There's a connection through them all. Can you see it? We'll come to it. In the sanctuary built by Moses, the law was in the ark. Where was the law in Eden, that first sanctuary? Where do we find the law? Definitely in the hearts and minds. Is that all? There you go. Everywhere. It was written into the entire planet. The planet was constructed to operate on the law of love. Everything was in harmony with God's nature. He built the universe to operate in harmony with himself. The law was written upon the living beings that lived in, uh, in, in the ecosystem. Of course, written on the, on the heart of, as well. The, the law of love is a living law. It's a law of giving, of beneficence, of concern, of compassion. It cannot be truly understood in stone. God's law can only be really seen, lived out by living beings. 
It's an expression of beneficence and kindness and grace and giving. And right in the middle of the Eden sanctuary, we find two trees. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, where Satan approached them with lies, and the tree of life. Any lesson about the heavenly sanctuary from these two trees? Think it through with me. Let's start with the tree of life. Functionally, think symbolically, go abstractly with me. What, what does the tree of life represent? What was it doing? If you look at the little, little theater, it's, it's being acted out. There was something happening between Adam and Eve and the tree of life. What was happening between the two of them? Trust. The tree of life and Adam and Eve, they were doing something. They were partaking of the fruit of the tree of life, and, and as they partook of the fruit of the tree of life, what was happening for Adam and Eve? It was imparting life to them. Now, can you extrapolate that out to something larger? than just a piece of fruit. Taking in Christ's life. Ah, did you hear what she said? What did Jesus say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word. I, I am the bread of heaven that has come down. Uh, the showbread that they would have to partake. All these representations. Who is the ultimate source of life here? Okay, God and Jesus. So let's put that together. The, the tree of life is on earth. As far as we can understand, there was also a sun giving, giving light that was you know, causing photosynthesis and all these other things to happen. And the tree of life was gathering that energy and, and creating something within the tree of life that Adam and Eve partook from that gave them life. First uh, Timothy 6.16 says God lives in unapproachable light. Sun representing the Father who is sending his rays and his life-giving energies down through Christ that we, through Christ, partake of, and we have sustaining life. The tree of life represents Christ. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. He is the life of the world. Um, here's a uh, quote that I like that kind of puts this together out of the book Desire of Ages, and it's page 21. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our, of our God to give, the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. We've talked about this in here so many times. The law of life. The law that life is built to operate upon. It's, it's going on to be described. All things Christ received from the Father, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. <clears throat> through the Son, it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. Isn't that awesome? Do you see the lesson built right into Eden? right into Eden. And notice, here we have then the, the tree of life representing, receiving from the, the abundant energy of the sun, taking to, to create fruit which would then sustain, we derive our life from Christ, Christ takes from the Father to give to us, okay? But then there was a competition. There was a competing tree. There was another tree in the garden that said, hey, my fruit's better than that fruit. My fruit will give you real life. You take from my fruit, you will have immortality. 
You will be like God yourself. You will, you will ex- be exalted into the high heavens if you take from my fruit. Does this represent anything we believe happened in the heavenly sanctuary? Do we see a competition, not between two trees, but between two living beings in heaven? Okay, Satan, also before the fall known as? Lucifer. Lucifer, Lucifer means light bearer. You know when Peter talks about the bright and morning star, or the day star dawns, referring to Jesus? The Greek is phosphorus. We get phosphorus, the bright, burning metal. If you translate it into the Latin, Latin Vulgate, you know what the word translated there is? Lucifer. Lucifer. It means a brightness, a bright burning. Well, who is, John say this is the light that lightens all men. Jesus is the light that lightens all men. So suddenly, what do we have going on here? We have Lucifer, the created being. Jesus, the, 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 the son of God, the immortal, the, the one who has life, original, unborrowed, underived, who, because God lives in unapproachable light, Created beings can't enter into infinity. They can't get to the intimacy with God that God would like to have with them. So a member of the Godhead leaves, leaves the infinity and enters the stream of time. He appears, Christ appears in the form of an angel so that his creation can, can interact in the most intimate way possible with his, with his creation. He is not a created being. I want to be very clear. He's not a created being. He is, he, is still, he is still God, but he just appears. And we, we have record of this in the Old Testament where Jesus came down and appeared in the form of an angel to various, you know, Abraham and other people, okay? Appeared in the form of an angel. But Lucifer, their competition now. Who do you believe? They're represented in the two trees. Which tree are you going to take from? Are you going to partake of me, Jesus, who receives from the Father the circuit of beneficence, the, the principle of giving, or are you going to take from, from the liar? And, and, and instead, instead of operating on the principle of giving, you're going to take to get for yourself. You're going to try to exalt self. You're going to take to promote yourself instead. What are you going to do? Right, right. Yes, yes. Uh, one of our viewers, I am concerned that all of this imaginary is invoked imagery in this Sabbath school lesson, but the word kingdom is never mentioned. What is this? The trees were not in competition to each other, as far as I know. However, trees do represent leaders. He's confused. There's clearly competition going on. Are you, which tree are you going to partake, partake from? And in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was a serpent. It was a competition. Yeah, it was a clear decision they had to make. Which, which one are you going to go with? Yes. In the language of my home country, a match is called a Lucifer. A match? Yeah. A Lucifer. Interesting. So what do lies do? What did lies do to the sanctuary? Where was the first lie told? In Eden? In heaven. Yeah, and what do lies do to the sanctuary? Lies believe. Okay, you're in a healthy, other-centered marriage. Remember the metaphor? And you love your spouse, your spouse loves you, and somebody lies to you and tells you your spouse is having an affair. It's not true. But if you believe the lie, does something inside you change? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Lies believed damage you. Neurobiologically, you're changed. You're altered if you believe the lie. They believe lies, and they were changed. Um, 
So lies corrupt and defile the sanctuary. The heart of man became corrupt. The sanctuary is defiled. So what's needed? The sanctuary needs to be cleansed. The sanctuary needs to be cleansed. This is what Christ came to do. Does the sanctuary by Moses, built by Moses, contain imagery depicting Satan's lies that needed to be destroyed by the work of Christ? And Russell, don't say anything. <laughs> Anybody else? Think about it. The sanctuary Moses built. Is there something in there that depicts the lies that, that needed to be destroyed? And if you're not sure, then think this question. When Christ died at the cross, was something destroyed in the sanctuary? The veil. Okay. Well, think this through with me now. Let's go through the, some of the imagery. Uh, it's, all, it's all symbolic, but it's trying to teach a greater reality. The priests in their white robes represent symbolically what? Christ. No. The high priest represents Christ. The priests in their white robes represent? Priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of believers, those who have partaken of Christ. The white robes represent the, the regenerated new heart, the character of Christ purified within, uh, which, which, which is represented with the purity of the white robe that we're wearing, that Christ now lives in. Only the priests could enter the holy place. The holy place is covered in gold, symbolic of, with a lamp, the lamp represents thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The written and living word. It represents Jesus. The written word and the living word. The lamp which gives light to the world is a light that lightens all men. So we find this in there. We also find a table with showbread. And who is represented by the bread that we are supposed to eat? Christ. Okay, and then there's a golden altar in which incense is being offered, representing the incense representing the prayers of the saints coming from hearts that have been renewed because the heart is this altar is in gold and filled with the Holy Spirit, the fire. Okay, going up to the Father, and the priests in their white robes entered every Sabbath, and only on Sabbath, and ate the showbread. There's a little lesson going on here. The, the holy place represents the church where those who have been renewed come to partake of the word, to partake of Christ, to offer their prayers to, to heaven, to fellowship together. And, and they are only renewed and able to do this as they are true Sabbath keepers, which means they practice God's methods of truth presented in love and leave other people free, all symbolized in the creation of the Sabbath. Because you can actually observe a particular day of the week and still crucify the creator and want him down by sunset. Right? So it's more than that. It's not about simply that. So it's bigger. So the priests, and so they're in there. They're wanting, they're, 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 their hearts are pure, like the white robes reflect. They're partaking of Christ. They're, they're, their minds are being illuminated by the studying of the word. Their hearts are going over, up to God. It's, in, it's represented by the incense. And they long to see, and behind, they long to see God more clearly. They want to enter into intimacy with him, and they look back to the most holy place. Something is obstructing their ability to see God closely. What's, what's in their way? A veil. And what's sewn on the veil? Angels are sewn on the veil. Okay, is there something, is, is, is this symbolism actually have a reality behind it? Is there something involving angels that has obstructed our clear view of God? Lucifer and his angels lie about God. This is out of 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, 
It can't be any plainer than that. You're saying that you can't see the glory of God because the God of this age, these angels have lied and those lies have obstructed our mind and we can't even see what God's like because we believe all these lies about him. But at the cross, when Christ completes his mission, he says in John 17, Father, I've finished the work you've given me to do. I've made you known. I've revealed you. And at the cross, the ultimate revelation of God's character is revealed. And at that moment, the lies are destroyed. The veil is rent. Satan's power is taken from him. Remember it says, by his death he destroys him who holds the power of death that is the devil. The power of death. Well, John 17, 3, life eternal is they might know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ in a sense, so eternal life equals knowing God, then death equals not knowing God. So his power are the lies that he tells that separate us from him so we don't know him. And so Christ by his death destroyed him who holds the power of death. He destroyed his lies. His power is taken from him. And we come back to the truth. But those who believe the lies about God have the truth about God obstructed. And according to the Corinthians text we just read, they're perishing. Their minds are veiled to the gospel. They don't know the good news about God as Jesus revealed. But those who have seen the light, the truth about God, are being renewed and being transformed to be like him. Their minds and hearts are being cleansed. And one other additional element for the, for the um, veil Satan also tempts us through our fallen natures now. Because of what we inherited from Adam, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, we have fears and insecurities that internally tempt us. And Christ, as you know, took upon himself our infirmities, our weak condition, and he cured it at the cross. Thus, the two elements that obstruct us, the lies that we believe were destroyed at the cross and our own inherent weakness of human nature was was destroyed and Christ cleansed humanity at the cross and, and rose again into humanity. He purified. So the sanctuary in Eden, the original and the original in heaven, notice, the sanctuary in Eden and the original in heaven are made out of living organisms. Living organisms. And there was no blood in Eden or, in he- or originally in heaven, no slaughtered animals, no death in the sanctuary. But the one built by Moses was made out of non-living matter, dead material. And it was filled with blood that had a constant stream of slaughtered animals. Why? Why? Why the original in Eden and the one in heaven? No, no death, living organisms, no slaughtered animals, no blood. But the one in Moses builds dead inanimate materials with slaughtered animals and blood being taken everywhere. Why? Yes? Uh, when you talk about the veil, I, I saw that tearing of the veil that when Christ died on the cross mm-hmm. is opening up God, God to the whole world rather than just the exclusionary group of Jews that seemed to hold him hostage. And didn't, you know, they were very, you couldn't go in there. So prior to the rent veil, only Jews could be saved? Where only Jews could come to God? And only, they only, Jews kept God to themselves. Yeah. Uh, they kept their knowledge about God and they weren't very good at being witnesses as they were called to be, but were there people saved outside of Judaism during those years? Yeah, I don't think so. So then they had access to God without, the, without going through Judaism and its rituals. See, Judaism and its rituals were simply a theater. It was a teaching tool. You did not have to be a Jew and you did not have to participate in that system to be saved. What about Naaman? Nebuchadnezzar? We have other illustrations in Old Testament times of people who were reconciled to God but never participated in the system. 
And the reason why is because they were not part of the acting crew. If, you have a, if you're going to put on a, a theater, if you're going to put on a, a drama, and you want to be part of the acting crew, get on the stage and act, then you've got to follow the script. And if you don't follow the script, you get kicked out. And so a lot of times God was kicking people off the stage because they were wanting to be in the script, but they were doing their own thing on stage and they were misrepresenting what the play was supposed to teach. So they got kicked out. But if you're in the audience, you don't actually have to be in the play to learn the lessons that the play is trying to teach because the play doesn't bring salvation. It's just teaching a lesson. There's no salvation found in goats, in the blood of goats and the blood of lambs. It was a lesson that was designed to teach that salvation is found in God through Christ. And so you're right. What happened at the cross uh, basically said that this drama and this play is also over. We're not going to use this play. This drama is done. It's been so corrupted by misrepresentation. We're not going to use it anymore. But within that drama, if we look at it, the veil with angels on it was torn open. And that veil separated us from our intimacy with God. Paul talked about the grafting. Yeah, grafting in. Exactly. Exactly right. Yes. Well, I think it's important. We've talked about in this class before that that tearing of the veil was not just the revelation for us. God was in the Son reconciling all things to Christ. So there were other beings, other angels that still had doubts about whether what Satan had said was true. And when they saw what happened at the cross, they, their minds were settled. So. Yeah, and, that, and let's give a Bible text. You're exactly right. Colossians 1, 18 through 20. All things in heaven and in earth were reconciled to Christ at the cross. Heavenly things being reconciled. Not that they were disloyal and needed a new character and a new, uh, and a new um, uh, humanity or, or angelic um, you know, um, character. They didn't need that, but they needed the questions answered to solidify them in their loyalty. You're exactly right, yeah. And, and that's what it means. That, pardon? They needed, the complete they needed the complete explanation. I mean, Lucifer had been the friends of many of those angels, and they didn't see, they didn't perceive, they didn't penetrate the, the lies and the distortions that were ongoing. Um, so what's being depicted by the dead, inanimate material for which the, the sanctuary was built by Moses and all the blood? It's our terminal condition. Our terminal condition. The sanctuary built by, by, uh, that God built was contaminated when Adam sinned. Uh, d- uh, the design protocols for life were broken, and thus this system is, is terminal. It's dying. We are dead in trespass and sin, Scripture says. Our condition, uh, as it is, is incompatible with the way God... God built it. But the blood represents Christ's life, which is spread throughout the system, symbolizing Christ would come, take upon himself our terminal condition, develop perfect human character, eliminate the infection of fear and selfishness, cleanse the sanctuary, restoring it to God's original ideal, bringing humanity back into at-one-ment, atonement, at-one-ment with God. This is a mission. Bring us back to, to harmony. And do you see how all of this illustration, and we didn't even go through all the symbols, but you see what we've gone through so far, all of it can be explained without ever having to refer to payments, appeasements, punishments, ex- external penalties being put upon. Or record books being cleansed. Or record books being cleansed, yeah. No, what's being cleansed are the characters, the hearts, the minds of people. We are being transformed and regenerated. That's what God is trying to do. So Monday's lesson. It's uh, quite rightly called copy of the pattern. Noted, copy of the pattern. First paragraph, it says, The scripture clearly teaches that Moses did not invent the tabernacle, but built it according to the divine instructions that he received on the mountain. The early sanctuary was to be constructed after the pattern. The Hebrew word for pattern expresses the idea of a model or a copy. Thus, we can conclude that Moses saw some kind of miniature model that represented the heavenly sanctuary, and that this model served as the pattern for the earthly one. There are implications about this. We need to 
really huge implications, particularly when you think of, of some of the theologies that we have about a heavenly sanctuary that are so deeply woven into our, our thinking. This is, this is absolutely right, what's saying here so far. But, but contemplate the potential meanings of this. When a tailor or seamstress gets a pattern from which they will use to make a dress, when they look at the pattern, is the pattern actually representative uh, of what the dress will look like? I mean, does it really necessarily? No. When, when you look at a blueprint, does a blueprint actually look like the house? No, it doesn't. It's a pattern. Moses was not shown the sanctuary in heaven. He was shown a pattern of the sanctuary in heaven. See, we could actually diagram out DNA. And it creates a pattern. A blueprint, even. And uh, if we were to do your DNA, somebody that can read DNA could, could read that DNA and, and look at the code and say, ah, oh, you're going to have blue eyes and you're going to have brown hair and you're going to have this and you're going to have that and your blood type's going to be this way and it's going to be that. You can read the code and you can know these things. Will you know the sound of the laugh, the smile, the warmth of the hug by reading the code? There's so much missed when we just get a blueprint. Still tells us stuff. There's lessons there to be learned, but there's, there's stuff missed. And it's important. Do we actually get a miniature of what's in heaven when we, when we look at the sanctuary built by Moses? Do we just need to blow it up into a bigger cosmic scale and then we've got the thing in heaven? Do you think there's a slaughterhouse in heaven which animals are being slain? Do you think Jesus is in heaven offering incense and smoke to his father? Do you think they're eating showbread and roasted lamb in heaven? Are there lamps burning, giving, uh, burning oil, giving light so Jesus can see his way around the holy place in the sanctuary in heaven? Is Jesus pleading his blood to the father every time we seek his grace for our lives? I mean, do you think this is actually representative of the reality of heaven? It's a symbolism. Yes. It's not a pattern of a physical thing. It's a pattern of a spiritual thing. It's a pattern of an idea. There you go. It's not a pattern of an actual thing. It's a, it's a, pattern, of a pro- pattern of a process. It's a pattern of a process, a design, a methodology, a way things are supposed to work, a transformational experience is what it's a pattern for. Unfortunately, there are many people in, in psychology and psychi- psychiatry, there's things called abstract thinking and concrete thinking. If I were to say to you, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. It's a proverb. Concrete thinkers will go, well, if they do, they'll break the glass. That's concrete thinking. An abstract thinker will go, if you can't take criticism, you shouldn't probably give criticism out. If you can't tolerate being critiqued, you probably shouldn't critique others. Okay, it's, it's, it's got a meaning beyond the obvious. Well, sadly, many people struggle with that when they look at Bible symbolism. They stay very concrete. Is it also an object lesson? It's an object lesson. Yes, object lessons, metaphors, parables. These are all things that are being translated into a greater reality. Yes. So, to explain a concept. Yes, exactly. To explain a concept. So, um, the third paragraph, it says, The book of Hebrews explains in unmistakable terms that the heavenly sanctuary is real. The sanctuary in heaven is called the true tabernacle. I agree with this. Sanctuary have true tabernacle, as well as the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Well, the earthly is a copy and shadow of the heavenly one. Is it? 
Or is it a copy and shadow of the pattern? Keep reading. As a shadow is always a mere representation of something real, and an imperfect and faint representation of that, the earthly sanctuary, sanctuary is mere representation of the heavenly. Whatever its limitations are, the earthly sanctuary does reflect the reality of the heavenly one in important ways. No, that's exactly right. We have to remember that a shadow or a copy of something is limited. There's only so many lessons you can draw of it. When you look at your shadow on the street, okay, there's a lot missing if we were to actually try to identify and know a person only by the shadow. And shadows can be distorted and warped in various ways, can't they? Depending on how the light, and you know some people can take their hands and do all kinds of cool things with their shadows, right? And you look up there, that's a dog. No, it's not, it's my hands. Shadows can look very different. A lot of people looking at the shadow of the Old Testament sanctuary system have come up with all kinds of very interesting ideas that have nothing to do with the reality of which they're based. Just like looking at shadows of hands, you think it's a dog. It's nothing to do with my hands. My hands are not a dog. Shadow is always a, a mere representation of something real. So we make grave mistakes if we extrapolate the shadow and blow it up to a in our imagination and plug Christ in. And one of the major, I think, errors of, of modern theology is to take Old Testament stuff, study it for, for your life, digging into the Old Testament, taking all the intricacies of the symbolism and, 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 and working out this whole thing, and then take Jesus and plug Jesus into what you have studied in the Old Testament and make him fit your Old Testament model. Rather than Letting Jesus, the light which lightens the world, be the lens through which you understand the meaning of that Old Testament model. He reinterpreted so much of what they thought it meant. And if we actually come to our preconceived ideas, and this was the problem, they couldn't accept him because they did that same thing. They studied it. They knew it meant all these things. And he said, no, you're breaking the law. You're outside what Moses taught. No, no, we're supposed to stone the adulterer. We're supposed to... He said, no, turn the other cheek, he said. That's not what it really means. It means this other thing. And, they, and so they said, no, no, you are breaking the convention. You are outside the box. You need to be crucified. We have the same problem. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph. Oh, and I just have to take a little side right now because this was given to me. It's a little about, about the struggle we're in. We're in a struggle over ideas. We're in a struggle of which kind of God do you see? We're in a struggle over God's law. Do you see God's law as an expression of his character? He's the designer. He's the builder. He's constructed his universe to operate on protocols that life is built operate upon. Or do you see him as an imperial dictator, uh, a Roman emperor who makes up rules that have no inherent consequence and therefore he has to use his power to enforce those rules with external punishments? Which way do you see God? This is what we're battling over. Interestingly enough, there was this battle in uh, in our church more than 120 years ago. 120 years ago, this battle between Jones Wagner came along, started presenting this righteous by faith message. Uh, one of the founders, Ellen White, said, oh, this is beautiful, God of love, these types of things. And there were certain legalistic, penal-type theologians in our church that didn't like this model. And they sent Ellen to Australia for, for nine years. And she wrote a book. This book is called Steps to Christ. Can you tell this is an old book? <laughs> Can you tell by looking at this? This particular edition was published in 1892. Oh. 1892. And guess who the publisher was? Yeah. Revel. Oh. Revel. Revel. R-E-V-E-L-L. They're still around. You know why they're, it's published by Revel? I've got it right here. You can check it out. The copyright was transferred in 1908 by Ellen White to the review. But from 1892 to 1908, it was published by Revel. Do you know why? The Review and Herald and the church refused to publish this book. 
Because, do you know what kind of God is presented in this book? Do you know what kind of law is presented in this book? The law of love that we teach in this class is presented in this book. That God is beneficent. Read, go back if you haven't read Steps to Christ recently and read this book. Everything we teach is in this book. And only after it was a huge success, then the church wanted to publish it. And this book has sold, what, more than 20 million copies or more? What is it? How many million has it, has it done? 50 million? It's, it's unbelievable the number of books, is, the number of copies this book has sold. But if, you, if anybody would like to see, there it is. Copyright 1892 by Revel Company. Copyright transferred to the Review and Herald by, uh, by Ellen White in 1908. Isn't that interesting? You know, we still have that trouble today. My new book, The God-Shaped Brain, published by InterVarsity Press. The ABC over here sent me a letter. They will not carry it in our ABC because it teaches heresy. But they do have, you know, Max Licato and a whole host of other authors, which I'm not criticizing any of those guys. I'm just pointing out. It's not just published stuff published by denominational publishing houses that are there. A hundred million. hundred million copies of this have been sold. Okay? So we still run into the same problem. You present a God of love that this book presents and people who hold a punishing God concept will stand up to try and stop it. It's been going on. This is, this is the controversy. It's been waging for millennia now. We're still in the battle. But guess what? Christ promised the gates of hell will not prevail. And it's exciting because as this message goes forward and as we take it forward and people who will really actually stop and think and put their ideas, this truth is so overwhelming. Overwhelming. It's transformational. When we were at the ACC, we had people, one lady came up to me, uh, she had flown from London and she had heard my interview with Tim Clinton, who's the president of the ACC, on the, on the God Shape Brand. It was a 45-minute radio interview and she had it on a CD and she said, this changed my life. She came up to me, I just flew in from London. I had to meet you. This changed my life. I, I listened to this every day. I put it on the, I brought it on the plane with me and I listened on the way over here. This, this, this view of God, it's so freeing. And we heard stories like this day after day while we were there, lives being changed because they see God as the God of love and they, yet they can still believe the Bible. We're not doing away with the Bible. We take the Bible and we make it applicable and understandable and we take all the text, put them together in a way that God is love and you can still believe the Bible. You don't have to cut out, you don't have to dissect it up into you know, uh, old dispensation and new dispensation and, and, and all these different things you have to do to try to get around some of the things. And we bring it all together. But God is still love. All right, Tuesday's lesson. Jesus himself is the temple, talks about in Tuesday's lesson. Uh, was Jesus suggesting that the pattern shown Moses from, uh, from which the Old Testament system was built in some way, it was the pattern of God's design for humanity when he said in, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Was he suggesting the pattern wasn't about a building, but it was about God's design for his intelligent beings? Where is the Old Testament system laws written? On stone placed in the ark. Where in the New Testament is it supposed to be written? In the heart. In the Old Testament, blood was taken throughout the system. New Testament, John 6, Jesus says, don't you drink my flesh. I mean, drink my blood and eat my flesh. You have no part with me. We're supposed to put it inside of us. I could go on all day. That, that, that box with a lid on it, with two angels on top. What do you think the box represents? 
My view, here's my view, and I'm going to walk you through why. The box itself represents sinful humanity that has been renewed in Christ. The box is made out of acacia wood. Acacia wood has holes. It's all kind of holes and it's kind of defect. But they covered it in gold and the gold filled in all the holes. So the box is now a box made out of defective wood, but now because it's all covered in gold, all the defects are covered and filled with gold. And guess what gold, of course, in this system represents? The character of Christ. In, uh, the lid to the ark, according to uh, Romans chapter 3.23, the hilasterion represents Christ. He is the lid. The angels represent the unlooking universe. The Shekinah represents the Father. Inside the box, there were three things kept in the box. What were they? Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod. What else? The The tables of law and manna. And the order in which they went in. Notice this. The order. This represents the converted heart. The first thing they got to put in the box was manna. There's a lesson here. Jesus is the bread of life. We must first partake of Christ. We come to him, we partake of the truth he's revealed, we partake of, it, of, of the love he's provided, and we are one back to trust. We have to partake of Christ. And when we're one to trust, we open the heart. Because I trust you now, God. Come on into my heart. I trust you. I've partaken of you. I've experienced you. You're awesome. I trust you. We open the heart, and then it says he writes his law on our hearts and minds. The next thing that went in the box was the law puts the law on our hearts and minds. And when we have the law of love written on our hearts and minds, we're renewed. We begin to live lives of righteousness. Instead of living lives of selfishness, we live the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Our life starts bringing forth fruits of righteousness. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, a dead stick. But now when we partake of Christ and the law written in, we are resurrected to a new life and we begin to bring forth almonds or fruits of righteousness. And then the third thing that goes in is the Aaron's rod, which represents us being renewed. And so the heart uh, the, the box underneath the lid represents us, transformed, renewed, at one with God. The lid represents Christ. The angels represent the unlooking universe. The Shekinah represents God. And guess what? Everything is touching the lid. All things come together under one head, unified together with Christ. Christ is the unifying agent that brings the universe back to one. This is what it represents. It's really cool stuff. As we look at the symbols. So, Christ is telling us, I think, that he was going to, you know, you destroy the temple, I'm going to raise it up in three days. That it's the temple in heaven is built out of living organisms, not dead stuff. So Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, capital B. Who's that referring to? Christ. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest on his throne. Who is this talking about? This is Christ. Notice, he will branch out from his place. Where is his place? In heaven. He did not think equality with God was something to grasp, but left heaven and humbled himself in the form of... But he branched out from his place to do something. He will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Wait a second. If the temple is in heaven and it's already there and it's the great original, then why is he leaving heaven to come build it? See, we have taken this concrete operations of an Old Testament symbolic system built on a pattern that was designed to teach us a process of salvation and instead extrapolated this up into a a, a big building in heaven. It's not. It's not that. 1 Corinthians 3. Pardon? If we're part of the temple in heaven, if we go to heaven, we get keys. Yes, 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 exactly. Here, here's 1 Corinthians 3.9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 1 Corinthians 
Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What do we say that sanctuary is? A place where God dwells. First Peter 2.4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by man, chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. But then what do you do with this one? This is a, this is a great one for historic Adventism. This is uh, Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Some versions say, not made with human hands. Made by the Lord, not with human hands. That's how some versions read that. Great text. What does it mean? Sanctuary, not built by human hands. Let me ask you this. Who built Adam and Eve? Were they built by human hands? Interesting. Well then... We're not either. We're not reborn by humanness. We're reborn by Christ. We're not rebuilt, exactly. We're transformed and renewed by human hands. That's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit within us, exactly. Listen to this, though. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. Now, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. And for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but we want to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Do you hear? Hey, wait, there's a, there's a dwelling, a building in heaven, an eternal house not built by human hands. That almost sounds exactly like Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. A sanctuary in heaven not built by human hands. What is it talking about? To remind you of John 14? I go to prepare a place for you. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house is a great building with many rooms painted your favorite color. <laughs> There's an incredible mansion, a great dwelling, a place, a heavenly dwelling for you. And I will come again and take you there. You're going to have your heavenly dwelling. And notice what happens when you have this heavenly dwelling. It says, close with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. When this, when this mortal puts an immortality, this corruption puts an incorruption, we enter our heavenly dwelling. Isn't this interesting stuff? Uh, as we continue to think about this, this is uh, talking about Lucifer and we're talking about the sanctuary. What do you think the sanctuary is? This is out of Ezekiel chapter 28. It says, You are, the, you are anointed as the guardian cherub, so I, so I ordained you. You were at the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and your and your." And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you from, to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trades, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. 
What does that mean? Desecrated your sanctuaries. Those who trusted you. Desecrated your sanctuaries. You know something, what she said? You've desecrated those who trusted you. All those third of those angels who followed Lucifer. All those sanctuaries where the Holy Spirit was to dwell have been desecrated by lies. Wow. Brilliant. Beautiful. If we can get beyond the concrete literalisms to what God is really trying to tell us, it's unbelievable. It's profound. It's sad. I'm going to jump. I'm going to go ahead and skip Wednesday's lesson, jump a little bit into Thursday's lesson, and talk about the bride of Christ. Who's the bride of Christ? Who? The The church. Okay, so let's look at Revelation 21 2. It said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. From God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And this is verse 9 and 10. One of the seven angels who had uh, the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a, a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Don't be too concrete. <laughs> don't be too concrete as you think about this what is the bride of Christ who is the bride of Christ is, it, is the bride of Christ inanimate matter is it just gold and, and bricks and mortar and pearls and diamonds and, and all those uh, if you look at the holy city coming down what's the foundation of the city the, the twelve apostles what are the twelve gates pearls with the names of the twelve tribes is there is something, is God trying to lead our mind to think a little bit more abstractly? What is the shape of the New Jerusalem? It's a cube. What's the shape of the most holy place? The most holy place is a cube where everything comes back together as one. The New Jerusalem is a cube founded on the apostles, Christ the chief cornerstone, the, 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 the 12 gates. It's, it's all the peoples of Old Testament times through the symbolism systems of the Old Testament and all the peoples from, from the gospel uh, and the apostles, all the peoples who've been reconciled to God are the new Jerusalem. This is why it says there is no temple there. Why? Why did you not see a temple there in the new Jerusalem? Because the new Jerusalem is the temple. And the temple is built out of what? In closing, I'm going to close with this as one of the founders of our church wrote this. It's three manuscript Release, page 231. The first tabernacle built to God's directions was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with hands, a temple in the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at a quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of an axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to the house all prepared for use. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and fitted this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed. We must be stones fitted for the building. 
We are brought into church capacity with defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. In view of this, we must see that our temple is not defiled with sin. Can we go beyond the literalism? You know, in the, in the Friday's lesson, it talks about people uh, who, who, who take and spiritualize away the sanctuary in heaven. It warns us against spiritualizing it away. If we believe in a literal heavenly sanctuary built out of intelligent beings where God dwells by his spirit, living organisms, are we spiritualizing it away? No way. The people who, who would criticize us of that are people who want a, a heavenly sanctuary made out of dead matter. Where did Satan want to enthrone himself in heaven? Did he want to enthrone himself in a dead a building made out of bricks and mortar and sit on a throne made out of gold all by himself in a big empty room? Or did he want to enthrone himself in the hearts and minds of God's creatures to be the ones that they loved and adored most and foremost above all? He wanted to displace God in the hearts of intelligent beings. That's where he wanted to be enthroned. This is, the, this is where God wants to sit enthroned in our hearts and lives, the ones that we adore the most. And we are brought together as a people who love God, practice his methods, being cleansed and restored into his likeness. A sanctuary, I think, composed of more than just human beings, composed of angelic beings. And you get a little flash of that when you look at the book of Job. And you see where they're gathered together and God is dwelling there. And this is what I think the future holds. So I give you this. Go home, think about it, process it, study it. Let your mind just explore the, the, the we will, it just, he's infinite. We're fine. There's so much more to learn. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths to lead us back to the knowledge of your true character of love. That you've, you've, brought, you've sent Jesus to do for us which we could not do for ourselves. Reveal the truth. Transform humanity back to your original design. And offer now the, the, the remedy that cures and heals us as we come back to trust you. The Spirit will take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us. So it's no, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We invite you into our, our temples, our sanctuaries, Lord, to cleanse the sanctuary, to renew it in righteousness, to write your laws on the fleshly tablets of our hearts that we might go forward revealing you in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Mm-hmm.